Hi, my name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhide. Welcome to part two of Explain Me, where we talk about all the things at spring break that we loved. And one or two things that may have been a little bit problematic. All right, so we we had a bunch of art that we really liked, and beyond just liking it, I think we both thought that there was kind of a lot to discuss about it. Um, so uh, I think the first one that we have on the list was a, a show called Secret Identities, um, The Amazing Black Man and Other Comics, and that's by... Kumasi uh, K- J. Barnett. Kumasi J. Yeah, Barnett. and I mean, the official title of the show is Secret Identities, but, you know, certainly the, the business card that I picked up um, from Kumasi uh, says The Amazing Black Man, and which speaks to the fact that the vast majority of the work were it's a long-running series where Kamasi is repainting the amazing Spider-Man series of comics not the spectacular Spider-Man or just Spider-Man but the amazing Spider-Man and replacing Spider with black and repainting uh, Spider-Man as as a black man and that is sort of an introduction to uh, the the installation which was uh, curated by Jack Lahav who is also notable for last year's curatorial effort of Who Let the Dogs Out? Which was a room and entirely filled with work that was themed around the song Who Let the Dogs Out. So there was a lot of uh, versions of Who Let the Dog Out. And, and so I, I would just voice one like concern that I, I do have sort of a question about, you know, the cur- curator's sort of intentions of like, how does he top who let the dogs out, you know, um, you know, so he sort of brought, I think, I think, he, you know, he's trying to set up in some way a, a, a pretty um, provocative installation with this, um, bringing this body of work to the fair. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. <laughs> I'm, it doesn't necessarily bother me. I mean, I would want to see more work by this particular curator before I drew any conclusions. Mm. I have like these two things to to go on. Um, so I, I'll just, you know, I give him the benefit of the doubt on that. But uh, anyway, I, I, I thought that there was a lot to talk about um, for this show. And part of that was just, and the curator had mentioned this, because the conversation is about race, there was um, a difficulty in even starting the conversation um, because, you know, people don't want to put their foot in their mouths. They don't want to say the, the wrong things. We should note that alongside the uh, Amazing Black Man series, there were four other um, kind of standalone comic interventions as well. And one of them, uh, American Man's uh, brought to you, it, it's riffing on DC's comic line and he you know the artist changed it to racist comics and the title of this one or the the kind of narration on it says stop it white man you're wrecking the world which you know I think uh is is fair fair and accurate and probably speaks to some of the goals of you know both this artist's work and you know a lot of our hope that somehow we could get rid of Donald Trump out of the White House (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, it did set up, you know, immediately a kind of confrontational um, commentary on race. And there was also a painting to its right that used the N word. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, there's if you if you have a, if you have a chance, you know, you can ask the curator uh, uh, about that painting 
and uh, see if he'll share its story with you. Yeah, um, it has been purchased. Yes, so. and that, that's really what you kind of want to ask about. <laughs> right. Um, so we, we, we did make the decision that we were not going to use the N-word. No. We didn't have a conversation about it. <laughs> I think we nope. <laughs> we didn't need to. Um, so, but yeah, I'm, I, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this show and was uh, brought up by the curator was the kind of um, historical lineage that happens that, that tends to map to the, the real world. So the body of uh, comic books that we're working with is basically 30 years. And as they become more current, the Marvel comics themselves become more bloody and you know the interventions of the uh, the comic book tend to be quite minimal um but you know the more they're well done i mean it's it's you, you know don't... replacing the text with paint and that intervention is obvious but it really only involves the lettering and then the face of Spider-Man. well yeah it's obvious but not like well, it's I, well done. So it, it well does, done. it's integrated, I think, fairly seamlessly mm. into the typography. So you don't look at it and think like, what's this other type here? It's not sloppy or anything. There's an attempt to mimic mm. the, the font. So it looks exactly the same, except there's a bunch of white out around it yeah. or something like that. So, but anyway, I mean, of course, like, like the Marvel tendency to make this like sort of bloodier reality also maps to our own reality where like we are seeing much more graphic images online because um like everybody records everything so it's just out there now um the kinds of things that we never i mean now we we kind of have to worry about like well you know is there a snuff video on the front page of the times well yeah i mean people have like facetimed live you know people getting shot you know, yeah. and or being shot or like recording something and while they're recording being shot. So, I mean, there certainly is, uh, you know, we're seeing more of uh, the results of like police brutality and gun violence. Right. You know, and there the, were kids and, streaming from Parkland, you know. And the vast majority of victims who, that we've, we've seen are black. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is just, I mean, it's a huge problem. So Absolutely. And I think that's one of the differences between, you know, uh, Kumasi's work is that it, it sort of gets right into the questions of like police violence um, and, you know, a black male identity. Um, and in a, in a way that, you know, sort of is, is really upfront about the kind of violence and it's not just projecting sort of... Um, I think some of the other artists in the show who are presenting black bodies are, they're, they're much more hopeful images or images that celebrate the body and adorn them or decorate them. Um, yeah, they're aestheticized them in, more. Yeah, or in, in, you know, sort of um, domestic settings. And they're, they're, they don't kind of speak to the same kind of violence and police brutality, uh, you know, or Black Lives Matter directly in the same way that, you know, uh, Kamasi's work addresses it in this kind of like conceptual intervention into popular culture. Well, and I like that it didn't fall into kind of the cliche of the themes that we saw, you know, the mm-hmm. protest themes. So that this is a, a work, a body of work that very obviously alludes to that without becoming, a you know, a protest sign mm-hmm. or, um, you know, a, a wallpaper with text on it. Like this is something that... Um, 
you know, works with pre-existing material in the the culture and and alters it. And I I, I thought that, I I really think it was well done and thoughtful. Yeah, and, you know, and and, uh, having, seeing this work after seeing Black Panther, you know, Marvel's, you know, very expensive um, Hollywood production of a kind of Afrofuturist vision that's sort of utopian and very kind of pragmatic in its desire to use education and resources to help uplift communities as opposed to violent struggle or rebellion. Um, you know, it's interesting to see a single artist intervene in that same kind of comic universe and just change the kind of terms of what we're seeing. And I think he does a great job of disrupting this kind of white male fantasy of having superpowers um, to kind of, you know, go fight crime. Uh, it's it's a really interesting, I, I just thought it was sort of one of the best sort of conceptual interventions in the entire art fair. Yeah. Um, and it's done really well. And one thing that the curator let us know is that, you know, he had been um, making kind of, you know, uh, abstract paintings, you know, up to about three years ago. And that, you know, whatever that was doing for him wasn't doing enough. And so that question, what do I need? What do I need to do? Sort of really radically changed for him. And then he started producing this body of work. And he's, again, working through that 30-year series of The Amazing Spider-Man for this project. So, uh, you know, really, um, it stood out, you know, as a a really strong exhibition within the fair. And, you know, that's the individual works and then sort of taken collectively um, as as a show jumping off that question of what do i need i think electric kb uh it's a good artist to talk about um because she had uh produced a free school um it's a big song she has a giant installation i think mm-hmm. it's on the second 22nd floor yeah it's on the 22nd floor and it's kind of in the hallway of let's say, female-led protest with Macon Reed's piece, Sarah Waco's protest signs, and then the free school, just to give you some context for this. Because there, there, there are um, sort of curatorial groupings throughout the show where you may find yourself in an area that's predominantly tech-heavy or interactive or, you know, in this case, the kind of like political, protest, yeah. political protest wing. Yeah, so the free school is really a resource center. Um, so it's filled with uh, pamphlets that she has uh, produced herself. I think there was uh, something like you can't, there was a protest uh, post uh, pamphlet that was like, you can't punch every Nazi. Yeah, I, I took home the art of politics, a primer for community self-defense. And I should note that there was a sign uh, in the, the resource room that listed um, a number of uh, groups that may have produced a lot of the pamphlets so I don't know if she produced all of them oh great yeah okay that makes sense and uh, you know before entering the resource center there is a uh, stateless passport office where you can have a your own passport uh, rendered for you Um, some of the text inside this uh, special document includes with this document, you renounce any involuntary forced common identity imparted because of the nation state. You commit to the erasure of imaginary lines forced upon humans in the world through blood, war, and genocide. So she, um, Electra, is a, an artist who uh, grew up and was raised in um, uh, Ukraine. 
Um, so I think that that probably influences her political stance. But I do know that you um, had some critique of the passport itself. Well, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with a lot of electorist politics. I mean, you know, I think the resource room in the archive presents a lot of compelling arguments for resistance and pushing back against different groups. But the, the end of the passport declaration, it says, you are, you are here, therefore, liberated and are the sole ruler of your body and space. And what I find is that just there's an uncomfortable parallel with like, crypto bro uh, libertarian thinking that really is sort of about, you know, individual sovereignty, um, you know, kind of forming your own nation state as an individual. And that that electorist project kind of gets into an uncomfortable relationship with that line of thinking. And I know you kind of have some uh, critique of that as well. But um, you know, I, I as, as somebody who's a socialist in, in my politics, I do think we need each other and that I'm not totally anti-state. I think the state could work a lot better. Um, currently, it's just fucked. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I would be surprised if Electra wanted to fully um, disavow those particular feelings. I viewed that um, statement very much as a kind of feminist stance well it's also so, an anarchist stance and i think well, i true, suspect but, she's more of like an anarchist you know in her politics which also you know would dispense with a kind of like central authority and state uh, states you know and in in preference for local and like kind of regional governance by groups of people um, as opposed to kind of formalized state politics which macon's project is very much about you know reclaiming the state um, you know, a, a, a different kind of set of political calculus, I guess. Well, I guess one question I have is like, you know, just how far do we take, like, um, I don't agree with the politics with um, evaluating the art? Because for me, I'm kind of like, well, you know, I, I would not identify as an anarchist myself, but that doesn't really prevent me from sort of appreciating the, the statement that's being made, particularly as it pertains to female bodies where you want to have more control mm -hmm. over your own body and she has these animated gifts that um that were drawn from a video where there's this uterus just sort of dancing in the sky you know which had i i felt it sort of definitely been drawn from the politics that exist here now which really don't allow women the kind of control over oh their and it's own going bodies. the other way you know yeah. it's, it's we're, we're in a, a, a reactionary and regressive period for women's rights so i absolutely so, understand that um you know and i, I think i think it's probably an electorist project it's hard to separate the art from the politics i think her politics are her art in many yeah, ways no absolutely and that she's really trying to embody it um you know we had a brief discussion about the fact like we were asking if maybe we could donate make a donation for taking the pamphlets instead of taking them for free just because this costs her money and time and effort and if there's some way to support the idea of a free school through a small donation I would have been happy to do that, but even within the you know context of the fair, she had to really you know kind of push back against the organizers to say this stuff's free. There is no price. Nobody's going to be commissioning this. This is, it, it it is what it is. It's not supposed to be for sale, you know. Um, and that that that's kind of a tough one because I do when I think about when something's nothing's free. So how is it being funded? And as somebody who supports. Um, her politics or that art, I would like to be able to kind of like contribute to that and give back to it as opposed to just taking pamphlets and prints and books and like loading up with merch and running away. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I sort of feel like this is this is her particular stance right now. I, it may or may not change. Yeah, and and I do think the passport itself is sort of like, I didn't have to buy it, but I think it's going to be one of the most memorable pieces. It's and beautiful, actually. I think it's 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 simply there's done. like it's gold embossed on this mm. like pink kind of cardboard like paper. Um, you get your fingerprint placed on it, and it's beside this like. Um, sort of, uh, you know, iconic type uh, logo-like image of a, a random person. Yeah, and, and also, you and know... And it's a woman, too. Yeah, and we also discussed very briefly, like, the piece evoked, uh, I think probably maybe through another conversation, but um, China Meville's novel, The City in the City, where you literally, to go... There, there's overlapped cities in the same geographical space, and to travel to one city or the other, you go to the center and go through a kind of like embassy or a passport, you know, right. place. And you you then come out the other side in the same place, but now in a, the different country. And there was something about signing that passport that, you know, sort of like gives you freedom to maybe change your state of mind, you know. And I think for me, it was like, well, I don't feel any pressure to buy any artwork or, you know, shop or I just want to let this, you know, like I want to have a different experience at this fair. And That's a beautiful analogy, actually. <laughs> well, it definitely was something that, you know, if I was going to have personal autonomy in that fair, I just wanted to, like, let some of the pressures go of, of fair going, which, you know, it, yeah. other fairs can, it can feel soulless, you know. You can walk, like, it's hard to attach meaning to artwork after you've seen hundreds of booths of kind of, like, relentless sameness or a certain level of polish and production, say, at Armory. Um and, you know, I, I think Electra's piece and the fair itself, you know, um, it, it's a place where you actually can have like a good experience with the artwork. It's um, really, it's really nice in that, it, very successful in that way, mm -hmm. I think. And um, I, I think this was one of the real highlights for me. I do too. And I, 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 I do think at the end of the, after people experience Electra's work and kind of experience the large um, fabric posters that she's made as well that kind of surround the uh, passport booth. Right. Um, the, 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 the kind of tension between what art can do in terms of having a political message or communicating ideas or challenging people, um, it is still not direct activism. It is not public policy. Um, you know, I think Macon's piece down the hall sort of echoed this notion of, of, you know, there are very real groups right now that are like recruiting artists to run for office. And that we're also seeing a, a huge increase in the number of women running for political office. And so that there, there still is this kind of gap between actual politics and, you know, getting out into the world and getting engaged as a citizen, you know, getting engaged as an activist. And yeah, and art, I mean, which is representation, you know. I wouldn't it's, call Electra's work social practice. No, um, it's around it. It has aspects of it, but yeah, and I, I don't, you know, I think she herself probably has many lives, right, as an artist and an activist, and you know, yeah, um, who's going to bring that kind of political awareness into a space that oftentimes doesn't necessarily have that much political art, or at least that pointed. The uh, political art, right? Um, so, Megan Reed was somebody that we wanted to talk about a little bit more. I mean, as we mentioned before, she's—it's uh, the most Instagram-friendly 
piece in the show. The whole thing, um, the podium um, that she sets up has that kind of cartoony uh, soft edges edges. could be carved out of foam or painted wood I mean yeah yeah it's like a paper mache or something Mm -hmm. like that and it's a kind of bright colors you know uh, not quite Simpsons like but you can kind of imagine that and I think that that does in some ways work to her favor because like um, the point, aside from the kind of programmed elements of the show, was that anybody should be able to get up and use the microphone and say what they had to say. And it does make the podium feel a little bit more accessible. Yeah, and it was the first, uh, I, I kind of knew spring break was coming up really soon because I started to see images of different female critics and writers at the podium you know, kind of showing up in my Instagram feed. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a big hit at spring break. Yeah, because, yeah, totally. I mean, on, on some level, the the sense that, you know, a lot of people's uh, level of protest is to, you know, kind of like get a really good protest selfie, you know, at a march or an event and kind of post that and say, I'm, I'm in solidarity with this kind of movement. Yeah. Um, but that's, again, that's a kind of different... Um, different than actually running for office or, you know, really engaging in kind of sustained local activism around a particular cause or something. Oh, absolutely. We only saw one programmed element while we were there. That was a, a talk by Amy Koshpin. Who I, who I believe, in my understanding of this, um, is, is, a, is a character uh, created by an, another artist or, you know, it's a character played by this artist. Um, who a- Amy is is running for uh, city council in the year 2021. So she's getting a big uh, jump on it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, maybe you can describe the uh, performance a little bit more. Well, she had, she used a kind of yoga voice. So she has this like very meditative type of voice. And the lecture discussed things like about political candidates vying for retweets and like a need for a safe space and that was something that I felt like was very much about answering the the question of like well what do we need well we need to feel safe Mm -hmm. we need to we need to feel better about ourselves and this was an entire campaign that seemed to be developed around this concept of wellness and um, you know, that meditation might help us relax a little bit. And so the whole thing is de- delivered in that voice. But the the piece did kind of remind me of this uh, article I'd read maybe two days ago. I can't remember where it ran. Maybe it was like the Huffington Post or something, but or the Guardian. But it was a study about how... Um, conservatives and liberals you could kind of identify them very early stage like at about four years old and the difference between the two was that conservatives were very much concerned with their own physical well-being so they were scared more often and the study went on to say that when they asked people uh, questions about their political orientation and use the caveat well if we could guarantee that this would in no way affect you that your the safety of you and your family all of the conservative responses skewed to the left more so the strategies of right-wing media to sort of 
instill fear in people is a strategy to really move people mm -hmm. to the right. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 when I, when people talk about self care or kind of wellness, that always indicates to me or brings up that idea of like a kind of me first thing. Like, you know, I've got to take care of myself. And on a conservative point of view, it might be like, I've got to take care of my family. So I'm going to send my kid to a private school. You know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect this little corner of the world. And on the liberal side of things, you know, and they start thinking about self-care when it kind of starts to go off the rails for me is when you end up with like lifestyle aesthetic magazines like Goop or, you, right. know, you know, like like I have to go to yoga. I have to, you know, eat organic foods and express my political views through things that are only available to me because I have wealth and money. So, you know, like farm to table organic things. Um, some of that that creeps me out about um, a kind of uh, consumer based uh, political expression, you know, or something like if I can just buy these products and services, everything will be okay. Um, when you know, when we start thinking about political systems, you do need kind of collectivity. Um, and that, I think gets a little bit lost sometimes in this kind of like, self-care or sort of me first uh, approach. And I, I guess I should correct myself. Amy Koshbin is the artist. And I mean, on her website, it says she is running for city council in District 39 over the next four years to, you know, potentially be elected in 2021. So I'm not sure if this is an art project or an artist who's actually running for city council with um, you know, using art and using these kind of framing devices to change the kind of political campaigns that are normally run. So this could very well be a real project for her. I mean, it's a little confusing because the bios that uh, Macon Reed sent out do not include anything um, for, for Amy Koshman about whether she is running or isn't. So well, I'm going to just uh, it's it's listed under on her website under the work section so ostensibly it's a work of art but what is presented um there is it's not clear whether this is a fiction an elaborate role-playing a performance art piece or uh, actual political campaign i mean i kind of like to know i do think that that's a weakness in the work quite honestly <laughs> Well, yeah, and you know, I uh, uh, I think with Macon's piece, um, it could be very well reduced to just a kind of Instagrammable space that people will project their kind of political fantasies into for revolution, reform, changing the system without actually doing anything. So it becomes very symbolic. On the other hand, I'm hopeful that the, all those talks, the you know, programming that's going to happen over the next, the remainder of the art fair will bring some greater intersectionality to it, different voices and, you know, projects or people that can add a little bit more depth to basically that kind of comic frame that she's created. Right. Well, um, do you want to move on to yeah. say Bobby's world? <laughs> well, if we're going to shift from a kind of outward facing female artist led project to something rather different, Bobby's World would be, um, I think it's probably another highlight for a lot of people's um, Instagram feeds because it is such a kind of compellingly weird, mad scientist-like installation. Right. And I think there's also the uh, the sort of element of meditation 
to it. So. Yeah, the kind of like, you know, heal thyself or what, you know, there's a, there's a kind of inner looking um, meditative quality to the experience, which we should probably briefly describe, which is you enter the space, there is a, a bed that has a kind of open, a, a door that kind of opens or spreads out so you can have a little bit of privacy and within that space there are like thousands of cotton balls attached to little lights and mirrors there's it's like a kind of hanging spider-like chandelier yeah yeah it moves up and down totally right? soft and cottony and you know then there's like a bazillion extension cords and cables that kind of power all the lights for this thing because you'll notice once you're in the space that the light the the temperature and color radically changes inside the kind of viewing space yeah i mean because there's no carpet or anything there's this sort of weird mix of like you know 12 monkeys type uh you know examination room with like this sort of um, fun, like art installation chandelier. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, we should probably give a, a spoiler warning that if you uh, want to experience the fullness of Bobby's world, you should probably just fast, skip ahead, skip ahead uh, until we're not talking about Bobby's world. Um, but but really, the the way that I think about the work, I've got to kind of spoil the experience is that it's um, like a kind of inverted uh, Yeo Kusama installation where in her work you go into an infinity room of mirrors, many mirrors that kind of create that sense of vastness and that you're at the center of this kind of universe. Whereas Bobby's world involves precisely one mirror. You, uh, when you lay down on the bed, you are instructed and kind of given whispered instructions that um, you're gonna place a, an eye patch over one eye and uh, you're gonna rest your head back and look up into a, a small mirror. And the bed is actually elevated up so that you suddenly just see your one open eye reflected back at you and all of the lights kind of like travel into your pupil. So you get this kind of like light tattoo on your eye and then all of the kind of uh, the chandelier kind of blurs out into your peripheral vision, creating this kind of just soft, weirdly glowing universe. And uh, you're also given headphones before the bed elevates. And, and an eye patch. The eye patch, which is kind of oddly uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, you're, the song lasts about three minutes. And it's a just kind of weird, droney, kind of ever slightly building soundscape. Yeah, totally I, I think it's abstract. I did not find it a friendly soundtrack. There was something a little ominous about it, particularly yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. By the end, it seems to build into this kind of crescendo of, um, for lack of a better word, just sound. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a melody, but mm -hmm. just kind of barely. Yeah, and I mean, for me, you know, it, it literalizes the concept, the eye of the beholder. You're sitting there staring at your own eye for three minutes. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of like a weirdly solipsistic experience where sort of the whole artwork is centered around your eye. Um, but then then the weird thing happens. You you get out of the experience and... Um, this, this second part of the experience is only available to you if you decide you want to read the press release. So I don't know if you wanted to, I mean, because I think you found it to be a little bit more uh, problematic before I did. And uh, I, it's a little creepy. It's super creepy. I mean, I just have a small snippet of the entire thing, but it, be, it this is not a typical press release. It's some sort of attempt at prose poetry but it's this welcome to bobby's world 
welcome Bobby to the world. Casually, Bobby has arrived. Blue-eyed to New York, greet him, be kind. He has something to show you. Casually enter. Now relax your mind. Let your consciousness be free as the door to a collective unconsciousness unlocks. Yeah, and uh, at the end of the press release, um, in the kind of bio section of, of uh, Bobby Ensbach, who's the artist, um, it says, his work is born out of a desire to share something beautiful in a dying world. It ruins the entire piece. Well, you know, thinking about it now, I mean, one of the unsettling things about it for me is that even with Kusama, last time I was in L.A., uh, I was by the Broad, and like a group of women came in dressed up as Kusama with the colored wigs, her clothes, and I was like, oh, I didn't quite get it, but there's probably a Kusama cult. You know, and the, in that case, there's maybe a sense of female empowerment, um, identifying with, a, you know, a female artist who's achieved a level of recognition that few artists ever do in their lifetime. Um, but I'm not okay with the kind of cult aspect of that. You know, I do think. No, because of it. First of all, it's the cult aspect surrounds one person, the yeah. artist. The artist identifies himself as a white, blue-eyed guy, which. I also felt was, I feel really uncomfortable with yes, that. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, because that's what drives most cults, right? Are a charismatic male leader who wasn't preys Wasn't that upon, charismatic? No, well, I mean, the press release kind of implies that there is this central figure, Bobby, you know, and that Bobby is also the artist. And Bobby was present in the space. Bobby, Bobby tucked you in. Bobby tucked me in. Uh, somebody outside asked me if I would like to take this opportunity to speak to the artist because they were present. And I'm like, no, you know, if I need to. Um, but there was a, and, and the way that there was a kind of group of people, the curators, you know, there was like a collective of people that were responsible for bringing Bobby's peace and vision to the world. And that started to creep me out. Well, like also, a, they, to add to all this, they prioritize certain people. So we watched... <laughs> Oh, Massimiliano Gioni who cut is, the line. They actually kicked somebody out of the bed. Yeah. To and, get Massimiliano into that Bobby's world. Right. And Massimiliano is the executive curator of the new museum. I'm not sure if that's the, the, the right title, but he's yeah. the head curator and uh, I think associate director of the museum. So he's, and he's one of the most important curators in the world. Yes, you want him to see your work. I don't know that kicking somebody out of their their place like well that does in some way speak to the art world's relationship to democracy on one hand it would like to be democratic the fair has a lot of things that lend itself to being more open and accessible and democratic but at the end of the day there's still so much elitism that like we'll kick somebody like you're just nobody get out of the way and we've got to put in this big curator so that he can have the experience first the collective experience yeah. don't worry yeah <laughs> like, and, uh, there's a line for this experience but everybody I, I, everybody I, will be assimilated yeah and i should say i don't know bobby you know i spoke to him briefly uh just in the course of of being tucked in basically and put the eye patch on i didn't talk to him after the piece so i don't know anything about him personally but the artistic persona that he's presented um the kind of in i hate to say it but this kind of like navel gazing experience of the kind of seeing yourself in this kind of infinity um putting an individual at the center of a kind of universe to me that's that's still 
like part of the problem and the the kind of cult just even that like sense of a kind of cult of personality around the artist even the person is not that interesting um i i don't know you know i think a lot of cults sort of they build their audience by preying on people's desires and needs and weaknesses and so if that question is you know uh if, if artists are responding to the question what do i need what does bobby need you know does bobby need people to be bobby to follow bobby to um, is he building a kind of mass cult out of you know his artwork i don't know but it's a little weird and predatory in a way that like i just uh, ugh, creeps me out you know yeah got a lot of followers i think yeah and I, I you know bobby may end up being um you know a very successful artists in uh, a, a world where people want to have you know experiences that that center around them i do like the fact though you couldn't bring your phone into bobby's world you could shoot in the space which seemed a little disingenuous as well like you couldn't go in and take a selfie in bobby's world but you people were like encouraging uh photographs of you while you laid in bed yeah i mean the whole thing had a marina abramovic kind of feel to it because i think she did a piece at art basel where you were there were cots where you could um, take a little nap because uh shopping is is really exhausting and she talks to you and like you put your cell phone away in these lockers and then you collect it and yeah, I think the thing that I'm worried about, though, and we're already guilty of it, is that because there's a compelling kind of experience within Bobby's world and it has a kind of aura about it, and we've talked about it, you know, unlike fish tank painter artist who we don't even care to name, Bobby's, <laughs> Bobby's absorbed us into his world in a way, and I think he's probably going to absorb a lot of other people into... Um, his world no matter how sort of problematic or weird it is i think the democracy quote unquote of the art world will take care of that honestly i don't i i don't see there being enough money backing this project for it to really take off yeah i hope so <laughs> um Maybe it would be a good time to move on to Howard Hurst's uh, Psychic Pharmacy. Yeah. Which plays in a similar realm, but uh, maybe offers a slightly different experience. Well, so I took the uh, Psychic Pharmacy experience. I actually had it. Basically, what happens is you go into this room that looks something like a, uh, a little bit like a lab. It's a fortune-telling um, studio mm. and the, the lights are sort of dim and there's a woman in a white lab coat who asks you a bunch of questions and she'll ask you these questions so that she can diagnose you with your problem. So I was asked whether I had done my taxes and I uh, had a crazy helmet put on my head and I was asked to count backwards from three to minus one in various languages. I could only do French and English. Um, so, and then when I was asked to make up a language and count backwards, <laughs> I <laughs> failed. And she actually laughed at me because I think the last uh, number I named was, uh, <laughs> that was it. Anyway, so I was diagnosed with fake news. Which is, uh, <laughs> A terrible ailment. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And uh, the only way to cure fake news is uh, to buy the drawing, the fake news drawing. Well, that's drawing. the insta-cure, right? That's the insta-cure. And also the, the kind of um, framework for Howard to sell some drawings Yeah. Uh, for $150. Yeah, which actually I kind of liked. They were, um, you know, there are all these various cures. I think one was like toss your salad or something like that. Like yeah, was... there were a couple that I, you know, uh, photographed and sent to friends because they uh, are sort of pithy, sarcastic remarks, you know, like fuck your brunch or my Tuesday is your midlife crisis, you know, um, which kind of revealed a bit about Howard's uh, personality, I suppose, yeah. as an artist. Yeah, so the so the insta cure I did not take. I also did not take the long term cure, which I think uh, involved kicking myself in the nuts. Yeah, that's not possible. Yeah, <laughs> not <laughs> biologically, maybe metaphorically. I can't remember what the other one was, but yeah, they didn't seem to be uh, possible. Um, so in I think, but that one was sort of um, you know fell in the category of like fun. Yeah. Which also fall on your sword um, did. True. And I, I would just say, like, I, I think Howard's work kind of pokes fun at self-care, the kind of new agey idea that everything happens for a reason yeah. or that you're going to find answers from, you know, basically uh, a, a gentle con, um, which sometimes can go off the rails. Um and and it was fun. It had an element of humor, and it didn't have that kind of same sinister feel that maybe Bobby's World has. You oh know? no, absolutely. I mean, there, but there was more. There was um, irony, which seems to be sort of out in the art world, except that you know, not really. Yeah, I think we we uh, irony is often a, a good defense mechanism. Um, <laughs> for dealing with the absurdities of yeah. you know these kind of conditions we face. Yeah, so Fall on Your Sword was uh, fun and weird. Yeah, it's a series of six platform scale-like works, three um, on opposing walls, and then each have the invitational text, uh, Step on Me. And in the center wall, there's a projection of a Frankenstein-like figure slowly reciting the lyrics uh, to West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> so if you step on one of these, um, one of the scales... And what, what, do you th what do you think they were? Were they digital scales or they look like game machines or something for like those dance-off things or something? I, because they were covered in like a, a crocheted or some kind of like fabric. They were all dressed up, basically, in a kind of psychedelic pattern. Well, but the the footprint, like the thing that you actually step on, yeah, didn't the rubber sit. was there. Yeah. yeah, that was rubber. So I mean, it looked like a cross between a treadmill and like a platform scale, and it, it, they didn't really resemble video games to me. Okay, yeah, I don't know what they were, but yeah. I mean, when I used them, I basically ran over them because when you step on them like a little sort of jingle will come out. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if six people step on the uh, all the scales at once, the full song um, will be played. Yeah, the iconic West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys. Um, you know, I for me, initially when I saw the piece, I wasn't even sure if it was an actual collective or just a kind of fun experience that Andrew and Amber had kind of like thrown into the fair 
But it turns out Fall on Your Sword is, you know, a long-term um, collaboration by a group of artists. And that w one of the artists plays Frankenstein or always plays a character in their videos where another member of the collective um, dubs the vo does the voices. So that, uh, you know, the kind of like Frankenstein um, as a metaphor for this kind of collective assemblage is pretty apt. Right. Um, but the thing that kind of struck me is that it was one of those pieces that I felt like it's two steps away from being like a room in Meow Wolf's like big fun art, uh, immersive art, contemporary art experiences. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like a Karsten Holler type thing, too, right? I mean, like, Karsten you know... Holler without as much pretension, like... Two <laughs> yeah, percent no, of the pretension. Take out, they didn't take out a floor in the uh, new museum right. to build a slide. No, and you know, I think for, you know, it was it was a fun piece. It was kind of a, a nice break. And in my kind of like matrix of thinking about this show, having you know um, a lot of tension between fantasy and reality, and kind of fear and hope, like fear of the world and the political situation, and hope that it could be better and um, escapist work that, you know, uses humor and fun to either like propose new changes or um, this was a piece that was just like fully in the um, kind of happy escapist quadrant, you know, where yeah. there wasn't a terrible amount of depth to it, but it was sort of a fun novel kind of engaging experience that uh, broke some of the, maybe a little bit of the heaviness of some of the political work in uh, Floor 22, you know, because right. I think there was a lot of wings of identity-based and, and politically charged work. And so this suddenly you're like dealing with a singing Frankenstein and watching people jump up and down on like little machines of unclear purpose is fun, but I don't know how, how much deeper it goes than that not sure it goes particularly deep um but to go back to the Carson Holler I actually do think that he's kind of a an interesting artist to think about in the context of this show just because like that show that he did there was a lot of, uh for the new museum and I think that was in maybe 2010 or 2011 he was that put, the slides yeah he put a slide through the museum it. there was, but there was also um a meditation room where you could float in salt water um and like the whole thing that was about wellness and there was a headset that you were supposed to wear throughout this throughout the show that was sort of like a vr uh it resembled a vr headset but what it did was that it turned everything upside down and so the kind of um i think the the metaphor of like new perspectives is uh, in different perspectives is something that um, the VR headset uh, brings to this fair and is something that like Carson Holler had worked with back in 2011 and sort of seems like, you know, apt uh, for this fair. I mean, you're right, the, there is a certain kind of uh, importance that is imparted to an artist whenever they're um, showing at a you know, big museum like that, but I, I still think the kind of like ethos makes sense. Yeah. And I think the last thing about fall on your sword in that piece is that it did remind me of one of my kind of like favorite video artists that I'd never see enough of, but, uh, Bjorn Melhus is a Berlin based artist who always plays the characters in his films and it often appropriates found, uh, audio. So like a sermon by a Southern preacher, you know, he sort of 
lip syncing it and miming it for these weird performances that happen in these like CGI generated universe he creates. Um, so, so Fall on Your Sword kind of evokes some of that for me. Um, but at the same time, it also like kind of made me imagine that uh, if I ever get to one of Meow Wolf's like art fun houses, it's going to have some of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, I think we've covered a lot of the shows that we wanted to talk about, but I think the three uh, that I think we still want to kind of get to were Lynn Sullivan and Dominic Muir's uh, Ours, which is where you bought, um, you know, your first art fair acquisition, as I understand yes. it. Yes. And it is also uh, kind of brings us to maybe, I think, kind of three more academic or, for lack of a better term, kind of like mature shows that issue some of like get away from some of the fun of like fall on your sword or the kind of self-care wellness for I think you know some um something closer to institutional critique you know um certainly with Lynn's and and Dominic's room there's certainly a, a a lot of questions about what what is art um what is authorship um what is the value of of art versus say craft or um, it's it's also the exact opposite of Bobby's world, where we're not really in the presence of any artists. Um, the the co-curators for this room uh, collected objects on eBay um, that, for some reason or another, really attracted them, um, and they were generally by anonymous uh, makers. Maybe in one case, there was a signed work and. Uh, attribution for who made it but in most cases these are things that uh the title of the show alludes to ours kind of shared um aesthetics or crafts that lots of different people make and have their own economy on ebay right and so the artists came up with their own sort of uh, economy or pricing system um and that had to do with love so if they really really like the piece um then they would give it a higher price point um, if they felt like they could, you know, part from it, then it got a lower price point. Or closer to whatever they paid for it right. you know, on eBay. So there was, uh, I think both of us had a real affinity for um, a lobster figure. There was a figure that was literally made out of lobsters. <laughs> Which was strangely Trumpian. It's the hair on it looked like Donald Trump's hair blown out by like, you know, Air Force One's engine and in uh, just the color, you know. Oh, it's a it's a lobster color. It's orangey. It's really, red. really orange. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that piece ran for 600 bucks. I think there was a, a quilted blanket. That Lynn had wanted. She, because she loved that blanket, it was going for 300 I would never pay 300 for that blanket. Lynn can keep the blanket. The blanket's fine, but like it's... Yeah. But I there mean, was like... I, I actually kind of like, though, that this was like... She explained that she loved this blanket, and that's how much it was worth to her. And I was like, that's great. Well, it's interesting, and um, I don't want to share too much of it, but I had met with Lynn uh, before, you know, a couple of weeks before the show opened because she was really trying to understand and think through a pricing mechanism that would align with her ethics um, and that, you know, she's also co-curating the show with Dominic. But, you know, it led to a much longer conversation of just how do we value a painting? How do you value 
um, something. And a lot of that gets attached to the author and the authorship. And you can make a lot of, um, uh, you can come up with a lot of rationales in some cases for like why something should be worth X amount of money. Like that artist only makes 10 paintings a year. Therefore they have to be, you know, 10 to $20,000 so that the artist can have a living wage. In this case, we don't know who made these things. Yeah, you know, they're all Lynn, anonymous. Yeah, Lynn and Dom aren't taking credit for this as like an artistic gesture of appropriation and rep, like representing because I mean something very different happens in the um, Goodbye Columbus show that was curated by Ayers and Aiden where uh, some actual Lakota artifacts were presented in the same display cases as uh, Rainer Ganahl's drawings of appropriated Trumpian like language like sad or you know the wall and they were priced you know that seemingly very close to if not the same prices as the drawings and that I didn't quite really understand what the pricing was with those works if they were being priced as you know objects and I think the curator um, who was in the room said that they were his artifacts that he had bought them and that maybe there was some element of love or appreciation I don't know but he was selling these artifacts, you know, in the same space as art and kind of putting them on the same level. Well, and I think this gets to, um, you know, exhibition design, which was really key in both Lynn and Goodbye Columbus. Um, but in Lynn's room, the, I mean, I would say that was, was maybe like 200 square feet. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So a reasonable size and the entire room was filled with these pedestals. There were maybe and seven each, or eight pedestals. Yeah, and each piece got its own pedestal. With a little piece of felt under it. And, and so they, I, there was, they all looked precious. And I purchased a little tiny basket, which I guarantee you will never look as good as it did right there because it had its own like, little spotlight mm -hmm. and it was you know it's a it's a nice little basket i got it for 15 dollars, and it looks like it's hand cart who knows but like without that presentation a lot of those pieces will will not look quite the same right and i mean in goodbye columbus which i think was a show that looked very sort of promising as a kind of institutional critique of you know colonization or you know maybe proposing some strategies of decolonization or something. I mean, when I walked in, you know, uh, I recognized one of Hugh Hayden's, you know, kind of like rug pieces that had flag um, kind of shaved into, a, you know, an animal skin of some kind. Um, I also recognized Rainer Ganahl's drawings. Um, he's an artist that has been dealing with politics and language for a long time. Um, but then as we spent some time with the show, you noticed some sort of troubling imagery that kind of crept up and then um, you know, I had some questions about, you know, kind of selling these artifacts, these Lakota artifacts as art. I was put off when we first entered the room because there was just like a wall of three suits, mm. like three men in suits, which is a little different than this spring break, um, like the flavor of the fair, where it tends to be not quite so um, such a button up crowd. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, you know, was it all men in the show as well? Yes. As far as yeah, it's of, all of, men. Yeah. Um, so you know, but the Hugh Hayden piece, I thought, like in terms of something that like might indicate something about uh, colonialism, I thought that that piece was really effective mm -hmm. because it's literally branding the 
United States flag into this fur, which, mm -hmm. and of course the fur trade was a huge part mm -hmm. of colonialism and like the economy that made that all possible. But right beside it was this piece of like two thinly cut pieces of wood that um, created a woman's figure with her legs kind of spread <laughs> by Joseph Ayers, mm -hmm. who's one of the curators, and it's called Natural Beauty. Beauty. And it's, spe it's spelled N-A-T apostrophe L. Uh. So there's like, there's something about this piece that's like, it was not even something. The piece that just reads is just deeply misogynistic. Yeah, I, uh, you know, and trashy. What bothers me is I didn't even see it. Like, I didn't even look at that piece closely enough to go. If I brought my eyes all the way up to the top of the piece is where you see the breasts have been painted into the form. And that it is so it's like a troubling piece. And that's where, you know, that was the show had already started to break down for me in the sense that like, if this is a show called Goodbye Columbus, why is it perpetuating one, that kind of misogynist patriarchal view of women, and then two, representing these Lakota artifacts as objects for sale and not for like academic study. So right. the show had a weird space in between. It had a kind of veneer of, of an academic um, or even like a natural history display, which is totally colonial. You know, yeah. and that um, was really problematic. And, you know, it, it just, it was, th I think at the end of the, the day, two days of being at that fair, that the Goodbye Columbus show seemed to be the most problematic uh, installation in the entire fair. And an affair that generally, you know, took a lot of risks and some things fell on their faces for different reasons. This one just like actively got something very wrong. Yeah. About yeah. its message. Um, whereas, you know, I think like the last show that I, I, I kind of wanted to touch on um, was a, a group show organized by Kyle uh, Hitmeyer and um, Amanda Needham called The Last Equestrian Portrait which has a, a sort of interesting press release that sort of talks about um, equestrian monuments and the relationship to the body and sort of power. It doesn't really talk about the artists or the work because that's what I really responded to. I think we both did when we um, came into the room, there were these kind of uh, exquisite sculptures um, that were sort of in the corner on the floor by uh, Tima, I'm gonna, uh, Tima Ausden. Um, Usden. And then there were also these sort of um, very subtle uh, paintings um, by Christopher Cahoe that had been done with hand lotion that could eventually, like, I guess, evaporate or disappear. Um, and, and, and then there was also the, um, a piece by Clement Valla, yeah. um, which um, was, a, I think, in some ways remarkable because this is an artist who works almost exclusively in tech and like in a show that is completely dominated by tech here he is with this like very physical sculpture that's like sort of wrapped in um fabric so. yeah and i think that was something sort of interesting i mean all the works had a there, there was some conceptual element to it that i think you know i could spend more time trying to figure out but like you know, knowing Christopher's work uh, for a number of years that making, you know, white 
almost white on white paintings out of like hand lotion um, very much is about kind of whiteness and maybe a kind of white fragility um, or that I don't know you know I think he, he's had a kind of long-standing interest in critiquing what whiteness is uh, in American society as a you know a queer Asian artist um, and Tima's works, you know, those, those kind of floor sculptures were really beautiful abstractions that kind of hinted at some other kind of identity. Um, yeah, they're very bodily. They have a kind of um, pattern patterning um yeah, that the, these like slug like slug like uh, are almost serpentine it made yeah. me think about something that you know like what would frighten the horse the thing in the grass you know and so basically it felt like a lot of these works were in conversation with um this idea of monumentality or a kind of authority um but in very indirect and kind of oblique ways that uh like i kind of want to come back to you know and so as it, it seemed like a, a far more interesting approach to the, the, you know, a way of thinking through this kind of contemporary debate on um, the removal of like Confederate monuments or monuments of terrible men who've done terrible things um, in, in a way that got at that in a much more interesting way than the goodbye, goodbye Columbus show, which kind of like sought to address it kind of head on. Right, but and it's worth mentioning the they're side by side. Yeah, they're right next to each other, so it's kind of you know, I you know that may be one of the sort of more interesting like sections of of uh, Spring Break because you also have that kind of weird museum of the future, which I found to be terrible. Like I'm like, there's no way you're going to make me like this. Uh, the Museum of the Future, by the way, is a darkened room <laughs> with several pedestals, all spotlit. And there's crystals and spinning wheels and, and like it's technology and, and yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely cheesy. Um, I, I don't think I was really trying to convince you to like it. I don't, I, I'm not sure that I thought that this was like a, you know, a, a work that I was going to talk to a lot of people about, except yeah. that now here we are discussing it. I know. I think we've like... said all that needs to be said about the museum of the future because it, you know, it feels a lot like vaporware, you know, um, not a lot. <laughs> going to disappear um, it's true but i i think that's probably um of of the works of the exhibitions within spring break those were the ones that i think we really wanted to kind of get to and talk about uh on our uh, hopefully least edited episode ever of of explain me yeah this is an experiment in the sense that we're, we're describing this as semi-live uh, only because we're not going to edit it that much, uh, see what happens. But hopefully we'll get this out at, um, in good time. So for our next episode, we have some things planned, namely the new museum triennial. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit. We will um, be speaking about political art and identity once again.